Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. So over the past five years, I've attempted to serve as an interpreter and a Sherpa of sorts through the wilderness of wellness trends and other thornier sociopolitical issues. And before pressing record and making a fossil record here on the podcast, I explore many, many of these ideas with my co-founder, Jake. In fact, Jake and I are entangled in a web of intersecting conversations focused on how to address the most pressing global problems. And indeed, we are at a strange inflection point in human history. And when we take a meta view of the human condition, we must acknowledge the progress made since the days of the Black Plague in feudal Europe. But technology and free markets haven't quite delivered utopia as advertised. Instead, we find our society sick, lonely, and still polluting the ecosystem. In our discussions, Jake frequently returns to the idea that while solutions targeting one specific problem are well and good, we are only going to untangle our Gordian's knot of crises with solutions that are equally interwoven. Now, one of these solutions is so old and obvious that we overlook its simple power, and that's living in community. Another one we return to again and again in our conversations is regenerative agriculture. Well, Jake is not one to rest idly in the realm of the theoretical. So in addition to helping run Commune, he is involved with a community of people who are building an agri-village on 240 acres of farmland and forest in western Washington. Rooted Northwest, as the project is called, is now in the permitting process to create a walkable village of 35 homes while preserving the vast majority of the land for small and mid-sized regenerative agriculture projects. As you will hear in our discussion, both Jake and I are fascinated by the future of intentional community and what it looks like and how learning to live in community might have the potential to unlock much larger changes into how we relate to each other and to the earth. And if this conversation inspires you and you actually want to live someday as Jake's neighbor at Rooted Northwest, well, there are still spaces available. Go to rootednw.org, that's R-O-O-T-E-D-N-W.org to learn more about their agri-village project and to sign up for an info session. As always, I am grateful to have Jake across the physical table and you across the digital one to explore the best ideas for living a happy and purpose-filled life. So here's my conversation with Jake. Jake Laub, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Jeff Krasnow, great to be back. So we're here, and, and the original impetus, I think, for this conversation is that, much to my great chagrin, you will eventually move away um, to the Pacific Northwest to um, as part of a community that you're very involved with called Rooted Northwest. And we can kind of back into what that intentional community looks like but 
we've been in each other's orbit now for 10 years in search of different forms of community. That's been a thread in our lives. Well, I'd say orbit, I've kind of been a tag-along roommate for you, whether you liked it or not, for the past decade. I mean, it's very nice to be in your new pod studio. It's a great upgrade from your pod cabin. Um, and I will say, I know that in detail because I slept frequently in your pod cabin. This was multi-purpose. It was a, it was a multi... Well, I took the... Skylar had some like Zabutons, the, the meditation cushions, and I would lay them like, kind of end to end. And then I had a duffel bag with some blankets. And when I didn't want to ride my bike all the way back to Santa Monica, I would sleep in the pod cabin. But even before that, you know, Wanderlust Festival, we were on tour together, which is about as intense a living situation, communal living situation as can, can happen uh, as coworkers, albeit... You got the master suite always in those hotels. And I did sometimes have to sleep in the van on top of the video gear. Oh, geez. Geez. Um, yeah, I had the keys to those castles, which was a lovely experience for my children to be able to run roughshod over the great alpine areas of the North of, uh, of North America for many, many summers. And, you know, festivals in their own way are these deep immersive community experiences you know we used to you know hand ring over talent you know oh we got to get this headliner and that big yoga influencer or whatever but when we would do the surveys uh, about you know what was the most important aspect of wanderlust it invariably came back community and that's honestly the legacy that I'm proudest about is like still there's not a week that goes by where I don't hear someone say I met my fill in the blank at Wanderlust, you know, my lover, my baby daddy, my business partner, whatever. Yeah, well, in fact, I mean, I remember sitting in a hot tub with you at a Wanderlust dreaming about what became commune topanga we were in the hot tub and i had just finished driving from los angeles up to british columbia and i think i was on the way back down or about to come back down um with all the video gear in the back of this van that we were using to like pop up and to create a pop-up yoga video studio on the top of these mountains because the talent was there, the yoga high quality yoga teachers were there, and the the setting was beautiful, and so I, yeah, literally was sleeping in this van on top of the video equipment in a eight hundred pound yoga platform, and I mm. we talked about what if we had a location that was so beautiful and right. so nice that we just brought all the teachers to yeah. us and then I would just and, live there. And you didn't have to break it down. And I didn't, we didn't have to break it down it. and I yeah. didn't have to schlep it around North America. Well, so this speaks really to the limitations of festivals because they are these wonderful peak experiences. They're almost like going on a psychedelic trip, but then you have to come back to dull care, to your quotidian life and that was always the hardest part is is that feeling on Sunday afternoon after everyone had left the parking lot and it, you know there was almost a wabi-sabi to it or um where oh my god everyone has flitted off and 
that peak experience of connectivity that we've created is now gone. Yeah. And all those connections don't get to build and build and build over time. Right. But I will build on that last story because I feel like it's been years since we sat down on the podcast. And I think there is some value in us just telling some of the stories that kind of happened behind the scenes. But then when you and Skylar were looking at properties for Commune Topanga, you invited me along for this one because you've had a good feeling about it. And we showed up and we toured the whole property and we were, it was so hot. It was in July. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the end of the tour, the real estate uh, person was like, you know, you've seen all of it, but there's this little side sidecar Bob thing up here that you should see. And we, it was so overgrown. We like scraped our way through the sage bushes up this hill and then it kind of crested and flattened out and there's a hundred year old oak tree there and it was beautiful. It was this little side canyon on the property and you turned to me and joked, oh, this is where Jake can have his yurt. We didn't even know. You didn't own the property then. And then lo and behold, you purchase it. And a couple of months later, I call you up and say, hey, Jeff, so how about that yurt spot? <laughs> Be careful what you wish for or what you presage. I think that the creek was even running there at that juncture, maybe that summer, because we had come off a season of rain. Yes, it was but, a beautiful spot. And then I lived there for five years in a yurt, eventually with a child and now a two-year-old. Yeah. And that was a really just unbelievable, unique period of time because... Um, it, it covered so many different aspects of our life. Obviously, the creation of, of Commune in all of its aspects, but obviously kind of the overlap of our personal lives over COVID. And, um, and I think, you know, describing that period is a worthwhile endeavor just because it was so, um, I think it, it was so fulfilling and also I think propelled both of us into kind of a life that we really imagined as, as our best life. Yeah. I mean, it was, so that was the next story I was hoping that we'd get a chance to tell, which was I'd been in the yurt for year and a half ish, but it was kind of this side thing on the property. And um, then COVID happened and it was in the middle of one of Skylar's retreats, literally in the middle people were deciding whether to leave or stay the chef ended up staying. Um, but yeah, we ended up with about 12 people on property for the first three or four, maybe even five months of COVID. And I, I definitely remember having some feelings of almost survivor's guilt or some aspects of guilt because the world was falling apart in so many ways. And yet I was happier during those months than I had ever been. Not like a, bursting at the seams happiness but just like a deep contentedness and when i reflected on it i realized that what fulfilled me was not a dispersed diverse group of friendships across the la metro area and beyond where you every time you got together for coffee you were spending the first 30 minutes just catching up on the past few months it was two steps back one step forward but that you sat down for dinner almost every night. We had dinner together almost Mm -hmm. every night. 
um, with people that you knew what was going on and present and alive in their lives on an ongoing basis. And you had regular, you didn't have to schedule your interactions. They were for dinner or just part of the day. And that was really, it was totally a different level of relationship. And not even everyone there was the people that would necessarily be like the people I would have chosen as my friends out in the world. But because I knew them so well, they were like, it was a lot more like having a lot of family instead of having a a lot of friends. Yeah. I mean, that bubble was unique. But I think what you're speaking to is the benefits of being truly known being truly truly seen um and um it's interesting i remember interviewing skylar very early on you know when this podcast was still in diapers and i was talking about kula because that was one of my touch points for community now, Skylar built this yoga studio out of the ashes of 9-11 in lower Manhattan. She called it Kula, which in Sanskrit translates to intentional community. And, um, and you know, I would bumble up those stairs and, and be part of that social scene and really witness the power of community to heal in the aftermath of 9-11, especially with those denizens of lower Manhattan that were going through a tremendous amount of grief. And when I asked her, you know, what are the aspects of, uh, or the components of community? And, you know, it was a sort of a softball question and you know where I'm going. It's well, like, I listen to every episode of the podcast. So I'll let you answer it. Well, I was expecting, you know, oh yeah, trust a place where people can be vulnerable. But the surprise answer was continuity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that over and over and over again, you're there and you're there and you're there and then you're still there. And that's why festivals, although they are a peak experience, didn't fulfill that. And having people in your life who are there and there and still there is real community. And I would add to that, which interdependence that you depend on, that you have a dependence on each other beyond... A monetary. I mean, where I'm going with this is that so much in our society has broken apart our ties of interdependence and monetized them as services. You know, just take childcare. Right. Like childcare used to be your neighbor or your mom or your grand. You know, your your the grandparents. All of these allo parents, allo parents being just a fancier term for the those people, those people that are parents and not parents, or your psychiatrist. Um, that used to be your, you know, the people that you would just go talk to, but now there are all these services. So anyways, that's where going a little bit with that. There's so much around child rearing and collective child rearing. I was reading about the his- the history of the kibbutz, um, uh, in, we are in territory I can speak to. Yes, in quasi-preparation here. Um, obviously, also, kibbutz has been in the news. And um, I think the first one was in 1910. Um, well, that was, a, that was a scenario where it was, you, you had to live in community. It was absolutely essential because the conditions were so harsh. That's right. Well, so 
This was a quote from the kibbutz Degania, which I believe was founded in 1910. And at that point, you know, your children spent all day in these houses, right? These kind of, they were called children's houses. houses. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and there was obviously a full-on collective child-rearing environment. Now, from what I understand, the kids did, like, know who their parents were. It wasn't that. But they spent all day kind of immersed with other children, right? It's true. I, when I speak to people who know kibbutzim, by the way, the plural mm-hmm. of kibbutz, even better yeah. than I do, that was actually one of the things that was most disliked mm-hmm. by people on the, the kibbutz. And it was, again... All communities come out, and we'll talk more about this because I know you want to talk about the the communes of the 1960s. They come out of the era that they're in, and you cannot separate them and their rise and success or lack of success or their fundamental values from their context. I mean, this is whatever, Alan Watts, we could go on for a long time about you cannot separate man man and environment. But in the early cases, that was my understanding is that's because you needed people. Well, two reasons. One, these all these people came out of the socialism of Europe and were very much steeped in attempting to create a socialist utopia. Right. But also you needed the parents to work because the communal business of the kibbutz was farming in a very rough environment at least in the early days it was all farming later right. it became other things like tech and well i mean you your kibbutz now, your yeah. kibbutz could be run around a tire factory or yeah. something else but yeah so it came it came out of a real need and ultimately as the kibbutzim evolved that was one of the things that really went fairly quickly <laughs> yeah well it's interesting because um and this is just an aside but very few of the kids that grew up in the same kibbutz would ever actually get married. And that was to the great disappointment of, of the parents, I didn't right? I know that. Um, and it was largely because they saw each other as brothers and sisters. Uh, it was really interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, if like you go back to hunter-gatherer times and this, the same logic applies, it was just that life were, had so many... Um, was so consumptive in terms of all the things that needed to be get get done is that it took a village to raise a child and that's an african proverb and it could also has that changed (laughs) i still feel like i need a village to raise my child (laughs) well you have which is why i'm going to which is why i'm moving to a village (laughs) and you know you could you could you know say that you know because some of that our kids are born almost premature um, given that they have to get out the birth canal before the head gets too big, um, that they're so needy that they require multiple caregivers. So there's all this this interesting stuff. But obviously, as we've you know careened into modern day society, um, it's pretty clear that you know life has become very atomized, and we mostly live in single family homes, and you know it's just very 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 different. Yeah, so let me pick up on the COVID story because yeah. I think we can progress. You and I could chat sure. on these things and we will wind down many paths. But so that was a very impactful experience for Julia and myself. And we, well, there's a kind of an, there's a side story that I'll get into, which is at first we, were, we tried to think about, well, could we create our own like homestead somewhere in the Pacific Northwest? Um and that was eye-opening in terms of 
what it would take. I mean, we showed up at some of these properties that were gorgeous in the middle of nowhere, just rank upon rank of fir and cedar trees down to the sea. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why? you know, I would need a trust fund and an engineering degree and all the time in the world to go through the permitting and just project manage. And, I've got the guy for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to make this happen. And then you're in the middle of nowhere. You're quite isolated. So we kind of yeah. came back from that uh, <laughs> single family homestead exploration with our tails between our legs and reassessed what we had just gone through during COVID. We actually did that during like the summer that first little summer lull that happened in COVID mm-hmm. and said, Oh no, we need to go connect with community. We need a, we need an intentional community. And so right. we actually went on IC.org, intentional community.org and started, we had a big long list of aspects of all the things that like were, criteria criteria. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, from in nature, but not too isolated, um, enough people. I wanted something that was big enough. 12 people was lovely, but I also wanted something where I didn't have to like be best friends with everyone. There could be social groups and it could be large enough that there was a variety of people in it. Um, climate resilience was one, Mm -hmm. uh, water rights, you know, just whatever, a very long list of criteria and rooted Northwest checked all of the boxes other than the fact that it very much was not built. And we've been over the past uh, two and a half years to get to this point. I, we've been involved two and a half years. The people, it's probably three years since the community has owned the land. And, and then even another year to two years prior to that, that the original founding uh, two families were looking for the land. Mm. So it's been, a, it's been a saga. And then we're, I'll get to kind of where we are in the process um, but it, the project got us very, very excited and it combines, I'll give the kind of quick summary cause I think it'll help us talk through some of the aspects. It combines co-housing, which is a community model. Um, it's not a legal model, but it's kind of a community template that involves individual homes, um, or individual units with some sort of common infrastructure. So in our case, it's individual Mm -hmm. homes uh, and townhomes and a common house where your individual homes have your own kitchen, you know, bedrooms, whatever. They're full, just slightly smaller versions of homes. And then the common house has a lot of additional shared amenities like a kitchen, you know, more commercial style kitchen and a dining room that can seat everyone in the community and a kid's room and a living room and Hmm. etc etc um so it combines that oh and the other piece of it is that everyone is in close proximity to the common house so in our case it's a walk like a small walkable village with cars parked on the outside and the common house kind of in the center and no one's more than a few minutes walk from the common house so there's that like village aspect which again we'll talk about what is old and true we've been living in villages like that for a long time Combined with regenerative agriculture, it's on 240 acres of land in Western Washington, about an hour north of Seattle. Um, yeah. So, so those two you, aspects together were, were very attractive. Right. So when you buy in, are you buying shares in a greater company 
or are you buying individual units? Because, you know, I looked at like some of the more successful models of quote unquote intentional communities or not actually unintentional communities like a co-op cooperative like in New York City, which actually has been quite successful over long periods of time. And I lived in one and we had a wonderful experience with other families and kids and left our doors open. And that was probably the closest I, I lived with kind of communal child rearing ever. Um, but so what is the financial structure to the degree that you can disclose it? Yeah, I can, I could talk about it. I'll talk about where it will be when it's all done. Cause it's the simplest and then I can work backwards. Ultimately you, everyone owns their home and the little postage stamp of land, you know, your front, your front porch in your backyard mm -hmm. will be what's called fee simple. Um, one of our big things is to make the project financeable from banks. So I'll go to the bank at a certain point in the process coming up, not too far and say, Hey, I, here's the home I'm buying. I need a mortgage. In effect, in, we're our own developers and then we sell to ourselves. And I think that's an important, it's an important aspect and a difference that I'll get into when we talk about some of the, the earlier communes, um, which this is not a commune because it's not income sharing. But yeah, there's private ownership of your home and then you own a share of the underlying, so there'll be an HOA right. and then you own a share of the whole underlying land. It's not that different legally from a condo. Right. You know, except instead of having a exercise, you know, a musty exercise room as your common thing that's, that's shared by the condo, it's, you know, 240 acres of regenerative farmland. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course, this makes all the sense in the world. I mean, I remember flying into Los Angeles when I moved here for the first time and seeing postage stamp after postage stamp of swimming pools. Like everybody's house had a swimming pool. I was like, that is crazy. How many minutes per day are you spending in that swimming pool? Five, maybe. How many people would that swimming pool accommodate? Probably 25. And of course, you know, you have recreational clubs for this very reason. I belong to one where I own a share and there's 400 members and we all own a share, an equal share, and we all have a vested interest in the upkeep and the overarching value. And of course, you know, there's responsibilities if people want to be on the board and take a bigger governance responsibility, they can. Um, but Obviously, there is some financial skin in the game. Well, I mean, also, how many times a year do you use your circular saw? You know, imagine yeah, everyone's sure. wood shop. The, yeah. the permaculture writer, Paul Wheaton, and I hope I'm getting his name right, I think he estimated that living in community alone, just that, just living in community, and I'll get into my, you know, talk about regenerative agriculture and, sure. and eco, you know, the, the kind of promise of that ecologically is like 60%, you can save 60% of your footprint just by living in community. I mean, you don't commute to see your friends. They're right there. Yeah. You're also probably going out slightly less because all you know, a lot of your social life is there. You sharing, sharing book buying food, cooking meals right. together, use of leftovers. I mean, but even down to the like, yeah, circular saw, like what your wood shop looks like for a village of 80 people, um, which is what we're talking about. I, I didn't mention that yeah. fact that ultimately it's about 35 households that are going to be in this village, um, maybe a few more. 
So you're talking, you know, 70-ish probably total people. Um, that you can have way better equipment and way less of it. That's absolutely. just one aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I my kind of first little taste of communal living, and I know that this isn't a commune that you're buying into, and we can kind well, of distinguish communal that. Communal living is very, that's yeah. a totally appropriate term to use versus a commune. Yeah, this was at, at Skyler's parents' house, and it was a culture shock for me coming up that craggy driveway for the first time um, and seeing all these kind of makeshift structures uh, with guys literally named Yeti uh, in them that had, you know, feet as wide as Wim Hof's um, just because they walked barefoot all, all day. And, you know, but there was like a wood shop. And, you know, it wasn't a organized commune per se, but it was like, okay, if you work this many hours, I'm going to give you free rent and you've got a roof over your house or whatever. And there was, you know, half a dozen, sometimes 10 people living on property. And um, and it was kind of on that first trip that I met this woman, Delia Moon, who her and her husband started Morningstar, which was one of the big early communes. I think it was like in the late 60s, early 70s up in Sonoma County. And um, it's like, you know, this is, you know, there was no structure to it at that juncture, but it was pretty interesting from a, for a guy <laughs> from the Northeast. Well, yeah. Oh, there's, gosh, there's a bunch of different directions I want to go in this. One is that I think there is just a beautiful analogy that I've heard about the communes of the 1960s, mm -hmm. which is that they were like a flower that bloomed mm. and like all flowers, that's the precursor to the seed, right? You know, yeah. you flower to go to seed and then they went to seed yeah. and it seemed Literally, like they yeah. shriveled, they seemed like they shriveled away and died, but those seeds were planted and I feel like we are sprouting them now, but having learned a variety of lessons from that era. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, you know, they were intentional in many ways, but I would say one of the most surprising things about Rooted Northwest is there's a lot of people doing regenerative agriculture. There's a lot of people doing co-housing. Those are kind of known, there are known templates that we're working with. But the governance of a large, like how do you make a multi-multi-million dollar project with thousands of decisions that need to get made, how do you make that happen when there's no one fully in charge? It's not like there's a boss or like a, sometimes these things often wow. go wrong because there's an underlying property owner that's like, no, 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 it's all great. We're going to do this all together. And then at the end of the day, they still have the final... That's they kind right. of like have the final say and it's not truly equitable. Um, and how do you do that in a way that is efficient and yet gets everyone's needs met? Um, and so the governance system, which we use a governance system called sociocracy, which I'll get into maybe in a little bit, has been a major factor. And I think that's a technology, a social technology that we've been developing. We talk a lot about like silicone type technologies um, in relating to like saving us from climate catastrophe. But I'm very also interested in the social technologies that, for example, let us live together in community so that we can be more ecologically sensitive.
I'm curious because obviously this has been a discussion for time immemorial. How should societies be governed? I mean, you know, and the size of the society might determine what the most appropriate governance is. I mean, Rousseau was like, yeah, philosopher kings, and or Plato is like philosopher kings. But Rousseau was like, okay, democracy at a certain level, but you know, if it gets too big, no, that doesn't work anymore. So you know, there have been some. There was a commune in Colorado called, I think it was Libre, um, or Freedom, and they, this was their second time around. They had started one called Drop City, which was an art, artist colony that was free love and, you know, just full of, you know, warts and problems that imploded. And they decided to institute unanimous, uh, what was it called? I had about unanimous democracy, I believe, which is basically like everybody has to agree or unanimous consensus or something. Well, like that. no, so consensus, that, and I, want, con, yeah. I really do want to talk about yeah. consent versus consensus and and full consensus and consensus versus sociocracy. But carry on. So they I, did it work at you with unanimous it, consensus? It eventually did, um, and then they in more very very recently. So this has been actually the mo one of the most successful ones. It's in. Colorado, it's still going today, 50 years later or so. And they've just changed it to now it has to be 80%. Yeah, 80% consensus. Yeah, because for a whole number of different reasons, um, mostly to do with the kids, honestly, because now the kids <laughs> are actually having to like pick up the, the, the governance reins because the parents are all getting old and dying off. Um, and uh, so, but they went unanimous for a while. And of course, you know, that provides some protections, but it's almost <laughs> like what we're seeing at the, in the GOP in the, in the house or whatever. It's like, you got to get everybody to sign up or it doesn't happen. Well, yeah. So let, let me talk because yeah. people ask me, and honestly, I really did not expect when I got involved in a regenerative agriculture, an <laughs> agri-village as we call the model, <laughs> Uh, which we didn't make that term up. It's a term that exists, which is also ironic because when you think of what how we lived for centuries and thousands of years, it was like a village surrounded by agriculture. Um, so an yeah. act to like have a fancy term, an agri-village, it's like, yeah. well, that Well, it's like local food. <laughs> it's like local food, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, that I did not expect that talking about governance systems would be one of the more interesting things. But oh, where to begin? So sociocracy... So you talk about what is the ideal group size for mm -hmm. consensus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're 40-ish people at the moment. We have about 24 households currently involved. As I said, our capacity is 35. So one of my secret reasons for being on the podcast is a bit of marketing for all of those you, all, all of you listening. But um, 40 people, you know, first of all, just the logistics of getting everyone to understand the issue and then actually agree like whether they're at the meeting or whether you're doing it asynchronously like that's friction right there just even if everyone already agrees yeah. on whatever it is so sociocracy breaks the project into circles which are basically you can think of as committees mm -hmm. where there is only about five to eight people that are required that are the cons the people that are in that circle giving consent because that is an optimal size for having ideas come up you know there's a diversity of ideas and yet 
you need everyone to really understand the issue and give consent. And I will mm. add, there's a subtle language distinction, because I love subtle language distinctions, as do you, between consensus and consent, at least in how we define it in sociocracy, which is like consensus is we all agree. Like, I have to work to convince you so that you agree. Right. Consent is that you consent because it is within your range of the proposal and proposal creation is a whole other, you could teach a course on proposal creation and sociocracy, um, that you believe that the proposal is acceptable and not going to harm the project and that we've explored all the ideas appropriately. Mm -hmm. And if you withhold consent, that is an offering to the group that it, that should wake people up that you feel that this is not um it's actually actively harmful because it is outside of your range of tolerance, which right. is very different when you actually, I, when I first started operating within, I work in the marketing and membership circle, something will come up and you'd be like, well, I want to, I want to, I don't, I don't agree. I'm not going to consent to that. And you actually think, is it because it's just not your exactly the way that you would do it or because you actually feel it's outside your range of tolerance. And the difference between how I would do it and range of tolerance is a very interesting distinction to make when assessing something. <laughs> sure. And, you know, one of the, I mean, think one of the big drawbacks in the early communes and that led to a lot of the disintegration were kind of like the freeloader aspect, right? So there would be someone that would come and join and they wouldn't pull their weight. And then they would lack, eventually, they would lack social capital. Like they didn't have any influence on people because eventually public opinion of that person would have degraded so much that that person would have no capital. And so kind of getting back to your committees, for example, it's like if you are just going to, to withhold your consent every time for specious reasons, you will eventually lose social capital because people are like, okay, well, no, that person is just not invested in playing ball with us. Yes. And I think, so the one thing that I think is really interesting is sociocracy is actually the, there's kind of two levels of social community technology that I would say. Mm -hmm. The first is nonviolent communication. So yeah. socioc sociocracy works on the basis of nonviolent communication. Um, which is about understanding people's needs, their fundamental human needs, and what are needs are not getting met. So if you can't, I mean, that's a conflict, right? Someone not consenting right. enough or like just really holding back the project, that's a conflict. And then you have to deal, then you have to go into your interpersonal conflict resolution skills, which right. is another skill set, to be honest, that I think needs to be taught yeah. everyone from, from children on up. And is another, yeah, it's important. <laughs> yeah, EQ over IQ. It's more than just EQ, though, because EQ, it's, you, someone teaches you to read. You know, you you may have IQ that's going to make it easier to learn math, but it's still yeah. a, there's still a technology of, like, calculus that you have to learn to do advanced math. Sure. I mean, I, I guess what I'm pointing to is a, some sort of emotional intelligence and, you know, the ability to find common ground and that's what these things are i mean these are cooperative enterprises so let me just ask you so you've got like your farm circle or farm committee let's say there's eight people on that do they 
Do those people get elected? Yeah. So we'll actually wanted to step back because the other piece, key piece of sociocracy and the way that it works is that every circle has an aim and a domain, which is really important. So the aim is the goal is like the stated goal. And that's, that's like your compass. That's what's keeping you, you're evaluating your proposals against your aim, just like we do with commune and the mission of the company when we go to decide to do something, mm-hmm. a business initiative. And the other thing is a domain, which is the area that they can operate in, that the circle gets to operate in and has decision-making power over, mm-hmm. um, which is what allows the project to be broken up into pieces. And sometimes there's confusion. Like let's say there's a project that's going to be very, very expensive, but it's, a, it's the water system. Is that a design circle decision or is it a finance circle decision? And sometime, and then there's a coordinating circle that essentially helps, made up of representatives, all the circles that helps mm-hmm. traffic cop some of those decisions of like, well, actually, in this case, both need to decide or this is a design to circle decision. You, you are not elected to those. Um, you show up for meetings and then when there's a space open, it's a little bit of a fluid process yeah. and everyone who does sociocracy does it a little different. We're small enough that like, but it's if you, by volunteer. If, it's basically. by volunteer. It's volunteering. If you yeah. want to be part of a circle and there's space in the circle and you show up to all the meetings, you're in. then you're in. Yeah. And, but you are formally in, you can't mm-hmm. kind of like hang out on the side and then all of a sudden when there's a decision that you don't agree with, like hop in and say, I don't consent, you know, like you're either a member of the circle or you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have to have any degree of prior expertise in that domain or no, just, just a passion for it? I basically. mean, a passion for it. And yeah. you, by being part of the circle, you are up to date. You are expected to stay up to date on the knowledge of the circle. I mean, I thought like, oh, design circle when I first joined, like I'm going to go be in the design circle. And there are, man, what they are dealing with in the design circle yeah. is... Level. A whole nother level than what I was expecting, and I was like, "You guys are doing great." <laughs> yeah, if you need to carry yeah, on, carry on. Um, yeah, you know, in terms of the glue that keeps an intentional community together. Now, there's different kinds of glue. Now, the the communes that seem destined for failure were generally glued around some kind of charismatic individual. So like uh, Osho, the one in Oregon, the Rajneeshistan, whatever yeah, that I one mean, was called, Jonestown, the Branch Davidians, et cetera. These well, are- you start to get into, I mean, again, you get into lang- the idiosyncratic, idiosyncrasies of language are you talking about a cult then or are you well but they all commun- lived in a communal they all lived communally sure so the and they were of the term yeah for sure but it seems like my point here is is that charismatic leadership does not seem to be effective long-term glue and i would add to that nor does an anti-establishment approach i think that like mm. being anti so i think some of when I look at some of the communes of the 1960s that really tried to disconnect themselves, I think that was potentially also difficult, as well as the free love thing, which I think was just emotionally destabilizing. Wow. Well, for I mean, there are we can just get into, some we can, heart-wrenching a- stories about that, you know, where people that moved into communities, um, you know, in the 60s and early 70s that were 
very much in favor of free love and then really, really suffered, you know, some horrible consequences. That being said, you know, there's a new polyamorous movement and that seems to be as mature as the new intentional community movement, you know, built say, upon the shoulders of those failures. So, well, and I would say that, for example, <laughs> for example, we were not looking for a poly, but that's a whole. Okay, let's step back and let me just talk about. It's a very different, you know, part of what we have to change. We talk about this at Commune a lot. If we're going to make real societal and global change, we have to step into a new story, like a totally new way of operating with each other in the world that is different from the kind of power over capitalist driven. And yet, to bite off too much at once is is overwhelming. So mm -hmm. for example, we're governing in a very different, like our governance takes a lot of, there's a lot of training. I mean, we literally have to have trainings for everyone in the community around sociocracy, nonviolent communication, because it's a new way of thinking and being and interacting. If you mm -hmm. add on top of that, the, the polyamorous side, I, you've had some great podcasts about it, but it is work. It takes up your whole life. Yeah. I mean, I might be polyamorous if I wasn't interested in so many other things. <laughs> I'm just too curious about other aspects of life than to spend 30 hours a week working through my polyamory. <laughs> well, I mean, again, I have a lot of respect for the people that are that are doing it and approaching it in a similar way yeah. that I feel like we're approaching governance, you know, which Fair is enough. like... With with tech with technology, and I, I shouldn't even make the air quotes around that because it is technology that has evolved. Yeah. And anyways, sure. but our polyamory got me got me so titillated <laughs> that I'm 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 off stride. No, but I will just say to to put a book in a polyamory. Anyone who I know who is in that scene when I'm with them. That's all we ever talk about. It, it is just an all-consuming topic. Well, you're also fascinated and want to understand how it is to operate in such a different way from social true. norms. That's so it's, true. So it's a little both of it. All I talk about, yeah. to be honest, is I talk, I talk a lot about sociocracy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah, which, slightly which less is a window into your sex life, maybe. <laughs> interesting point here about how you've gone about building rooted versus how a lot of the communes um, were inspired in the 60s and 70s so a lot of the communes at least the ones that i was familiar with were looking to kind of like drop out you know to basically disengage with society for very very justifiable reasons you know people were disenchanted with materialism and lack of spirituality and the modern industrial complex and keep going the vietnam war whatever it happens to be con uh, conformity and they're like i'm out you know i'm i'm moving into a closed society where i can be with my people and kind of shun the conformist world. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the approach that you're taking, right? Yes. Um, so one of the really interesting things about the project 
that felt like a roadblock initially, but ultimately has been very, I think, beneficial, is that when we purchased these 240 acres, it had been a farm for 100 years, and the local community, Snohomish County, is a rural county, and there was a lot of concern that this piece of land, which was actually zoned residential, um, rural R5, could was just going to be chopped up into five-acre parcels and developed and sold off in goodbye farmland, mm. um, which is a very common occurrence, sure, yeah. especially for these, these older farms. Um, and when the community found, basically we came in and said, no, 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 we're the buyers. I wasn't actually involved at this point, but my understanding of the story is we're like, no, 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 we're the buyers. Our vision, we're actually, our mission is farmland preservation. And so what we want to do is build, in order to preserve this farmland, we're going to use some of the development rights and build this village in a small five-acre envelope on the property and preserve the, you know, there's about, it's kind of ringed by this beautiful forest, but it's about 185 acres of prime farmland. But the problem was that under rural code, you can't have a development that dense. Right. Um, and so we actually have worked with the county government to create a new ordinance, which this is why I have notes because it's, it's, it's quite long, a, it's if I long. remember. Yes, yeah. it's the Rural Village Housing Demonstration Program, okay. or the RVHDP for short. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, I mean, we, we basically got involved in the county government with the planning commission and all these things mm -hmm. to develop this law that allows the project to have the density that we need. And in the process... That took quite a time because the wheels of county government yeah. work, especially during COVID, I will say also. Yeah. Um, but it made us, A, have a very close relationship with the county, and there's multiple rounds of public review that comment, happened, yeah. public comment. So we actually had to do a lot of outreach mm -hmm. to explain to people what was going on so that it wouldn't come back as blowback when all of a sudden you know, there was this ordinance. Probably um, meant a lot of your prospective neighbors that way. Well, exactly. We we actively had to be very involved in the community because of that process. Right. And I'm very proud. And as a result, you know, there's also now this law that serves as a template for other counties that want to have to want to allow certain types of developers, because at the end of the day, we are, quote unquote, a developer, mm -hmm. um, to preserve farmland and yet also create community. The one piece that I will add to that, just because I love talking about it, is like we feel we spend so much time talking about our federal government and that feels very disempowering to people. Yeah. But local government is actually a place that you really can get involved. I mean, these are just some people on Zoom calls. You can join a lot of the Zoom calls of your local government or you can go and it's people in your community that are very accessible and you know our core citizen power that was kind of one of the messages of the course was like yes you need to understand how the supreme court works but get involved in your local government yeah i think i remember i'm not sure if it was from that course or from some interviews that we were doing around the time of that course 
where it's like, if you go to some of these public comments or some of these, you can actually be the only one voting <laughs> sometimes. So you're making a huge difference in your local, um, in your local, um, and it's what affects yeah, yeah. you. Like it is right. it, a lot thing. more and a lot of things start at the local government that move to the state government and then become templates nationally. Yeah. So this is really, you're really creating a much more open platform that bridges into society. This isn't, you're not even actually thinking about this as some sort of like escapism in any way. This is actually just a new model for working within to, to change society from within the way that we live with each other from within. Yeah. And just to kind of sum up everywhere we've gone so far, that's, you know, at a base level of communication, not things like nonviolent communication, it's governance and decision-making with sociocracy. And then it's models of community and like land development mm, that yeah. are eco that, result in intentional communities that I believe are more eco-sensitive. And so where this is going is the intersectionality piece, which is like our world has so many problems that are so complex and intersectional. We need to have solutions that are, that are complex yeah. and intersectional. Absolutely. Well, and we'll slide into regenerative agriculture slowly, but if you look at you know soil health, planetary health, human health, health of local economies, health of farmers, I mean, it just checks every box you can possibly imagine, carbon sequestration, et cetera, in one single practice. Well, why don't you give your globalism speech right now? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's just also, you know, we have gotten so accustomed to this notion that like the butter from New Zealand is somehow cheaper than the butter that your farmer makes over in the next county. And, you know, that is a product of globalism. And, you know, if the last five or six years have revealed anything is that there is a tremendous distaste for globalism. It's left swaths of people behind and people have become very 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 angry for justifiable reasons and so you know you see the rise of populism as sort of uh directly in the face of globalism and and also of like consolidation at every possible level whether that's like you know five organizations owning most of the media you know we don't have that local newspaper or that um you know that local jazz club or like the even you know local markets we've all become so used to these kind of monolithic conglomerates that we have become so out of touch with you know w where our food comes from where our information comes from where our friends come from i mean i know my children are just as likely to be quote unquote friends with someone 3,000 miles away than they are a block away and probably don't even know their neighbor's name. So, you know, again, I think that if we're going to unravel some of these massive problems, we're going to have to do it locally. And it turns out to be a lot more personally fulfilling. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a trope in the permaculture world, which is that 
I think actually I got it from one of our permaculture teachers on our courses, um, that ecosystems do better when they, you connect more of them to themselves. Okay. And so if you're going to have... Conne- and, and connections means dependence in some way. And so your local jazz club depended on like people cycling through it. But when services become so abstract that it's music from Spotify, just to stick with the music theme, you can take it or leave it. Both sides of the equation becomes dispensable. And you give up things when you make yourself more interdependent. Like if I rely on other people in my community, if I'm interdependent, I, I rely on them for things. But, and I can't just like change my childcare because I disagree with what they said to, to Mava. Yeah. I would have to go talk with them about it, you know? So there's work involved, <laughs> right. there's time involved, but there's more fulfillment involved. Well, this, I, you know, Charles talks a lot about this in that Sacred Economics book, really. Yeah, Charles Eisenstein. Charles Eisenstein, which is, you know, that we become so used to the $19.99 dress off the you know, racket marshals that it becomes something disposable um, versus, you know, the, the dress that your grandmother made. And by extension, no one's going to cry a tear when a Seven Eleven closes, but when a local market closes where you actually know the people there, that is heart wrenching, but that's what's happened. So interesting aside, what is culture? One of the definitions that mm-hmm. I know came from our permaculture course is culture is literally the embodiment of the land through people. I mean, you think of mm-hmm. culture before we had any sort of globalization at all, yeah. it was, it could only come from the land. Culture was the food you ate that you grew or that you could forage right there. It was the, how you made your clothes because you made your clothes out of woven processed cedar bark because that's what came from the trees. Yeah. It was the songs you sang because those were the birds you listened to. It was literally a the humanization of the place. Yeah. And, well, when you apply that to culture, I mean, what what is the place from which we are pulling said culture? (laughs) Yeah. And to have an identifiable place means heterogeneity. The second you get mass global homogeneity and culture, a culture actually ceases to exist. It's all the same thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing that, um, I, when I was listening to this wonderful podcast about communes earlier today, the one that was um, very successful, and you know, we talked a little bit about like what's the glue of rooted, and uh, and the intersectionality between the different kind of pillars of the things that are most important for that community. So there was this one, you know, Libre. I go back to this one in Colorado, where it was really an art colony, and what they were, and there was obviously all of these, not all, most of these communes had a very strong creative component to them especially in the 60s it was like but this one was really about being able to facilitate um, people's ability to express themselves through art so the shared facilities were these big wonderful studios versus everyone having to build their own studio etc right but one of the things that made them successful or actually i'm not sure if it made them successful but one of their founding principles was that they were not going to be responsible 
for each other's well-being. And I found that to be really kind of a jarring statement. Um, but I think that the early communes, it was incumbent upon everybody to kind of ensure everybody else's happiness and well-being. And mm. that in this particular case, they're like, no, we're going to facilitate this intentional community. Our goal, our, our glue is about art and creativity, but we're not, but the community is not responsible for everybody else's kind of overarching well-being. I found it kind of interesting. I don't know how, if you guys have, where you can land on that. Well, so it brings up two things for me. One is the importance of a vision for these things, mm. for communities typically are, I mean, if it was a kibbutz, it was literally you shared a business. So a true commune, right. you were contributing yeah. to the communal collective pot. Enterprise, it was, it yeah. Was, yeah. And, and with kibbutzim, it was a collective enterprise. It was the, you know, date farm right. or the tech whatever factory. Yeah. And you, you literally were contributing to that, which by the way, also led to some economic destabil destabilization because right. if the global market shifted for dates, you know, all of a sudden or, everyone. Yeah. If we had a bad, yeah, you know, harvest. Yeah. yeah. Um, so certainly one of our glues is, or one, one thing that brings us together is regenerative agriculture and the belief that living in community, obviously that's one, and combined with regenerative agriculture and a passion for making, making a space for small and medium-sized farmers to farm, which is, this is going to lead into a whole other fascinating conversation around the future of farming. Um, because to be honest, I was talking with you about this earlier, code, like county code, tends to really try and spread out uh, or create separation between uh, agriculture and residential, like residential zone zoning from like a zoning perspective, because if you tend to put a farm, uh, like an agricultural zone area right next to a residential area, the residential people are going to be start complaining that like, that smells like manure every once in a while, or the farmer is out there at 11 p.m. on a summer night yeah. because they got to get the harvest in because there's going to be a late season rain or yeah. whatever or, it is. Or pests or herbicides or, I mean, well, so yeah, many I different mean, things. Certainly, yeah. certainly, yes, if you're spraying, I mean, yeah. within a traditional monocrop culture, you're spraying right. herbicides, that's a problem. Yeah. Um, so by bringing, but, but ironically, as I already mentioned, the original village concept was village and agriculture together, together. for all sorts of reasons. Um, but if you're going to join, well, I remember where I was going with that. If you're going to join a community that to be honest requires a, you waiting around a couple of years for it to be available, getting involved on a, you know, weekly basis with meetings and things like that. And, you know, being on a farm, you have to care about, farming and regenerative agriculture. So not everyone in the community is going to have and be commercially involved in agriculture, but everyone is regenerative agricultural passionate in some form, mm -hmm. in addition to being passionate about living in community. So that's glue. And then on top of it though, the way that we use glue is literally like interactions, having enough time mm -hmm. with each other that when social time 
things like that, that when things get tough or you actually need to make a decision, you have the glue to make it through that decision. So that's actually the word when you say glue, what I think about. But I do think we have common vision mm -hmm. um, and that pulls us. In any enterprise, any country, any community, you know, revolves around some degree of social contract. So within a social contract, there's always something that you're giving up to get something else. And in the best case scenario, what you get is better than what you give up or the, you know, is the scale is, is tilted in that favor. And certainly, you know, we see our country kind of on mass, there's been this, there's always this tension between sort of individual freedoms, right? And then like collective rights. And, it, and it's like this, ugh, it's this tug of war. So in Rooted, what are you giving up, if anything? And what are you getting in exchange? And how, how do you see that equation working, even generally? That's a good question. I've certainly given up a fair amount of time. <laughs> okay. No, that's a big deal. <laughs> and, and, and effort. Well, you know, time and effort. I mean, because to be involved in community requires an investment of time. You also give up some freedom. You can't do, we like to talk about the blend, the language that we use is autonomy with shared responsibility. So, and again, going back to the, that comment about being responsible for other people's wellness we're not a community that's based around any philosophical, like you don't have to be, a, you can be a vegan or, or a carnivore, or mm -hmm. you can, you know what, if we're not going to judge you if we see a fast food like container in your car, because you maybe had to make a decision that day that led you because you really just wanted some french fries you know so there's there's an autonomy aspect no, no fry shaming <laughs> no fry, at rooted no fry shaming at rooted okay um but there is shared responsibility in terms of you know you the one of the things i've heard from one of our consultants who lives in co-housing our architect actually which is fantastic architect what he does is build co-housing mm -hmm. um projects which is amazing because he can talk about so many different things he's seen and he lives in one but one of the things he said was like kitchen duty your monthly kitchen duty is non-negotiable you don't have to show up for the meals you know those are mm -hmm. actually on like on a per pay and now with with your phones it's really easy um you know because we plan to have hopefully i hope more like four or five community meals evening meals a week um but you have to do your shift you know, if you're in that, you don't have to be the lead cook, but you have to like complete your shift. So there's some amount of being involved. And is that part of a litany of responsibilities that rooted you to be, well, well maybe I mean, it's we not in the kitchen yet. necessarily. Yeah, we yeah. don't know yet because right. I mean, you have to be involved in a circle, Something. for yeah. example, uh -huh. because you need to be involved contributing some sort of labor right. to the project. Um, we don't, you know, we don't know cause we're not living together. So those things will start to develop over time, but you sure. give up some level of, there's some level of commitment that you have to make, but the same thing, if you had a home, I mean, I guess you could let your home fall apart, but you, you're a homeowner. It takes a lot of, I was a yurt owner, it took a lot of work to like, well, keep, it's to actually, maintain that. it's actually really interesting. <laughs> um, because some of these communes that I read about, some of them, you know, 
the, the the actual home building was communal and they all pretty much looked the same. Some of them, a bunch of them were Bucky Fuller geodomes. Um, but, and then there were other ones that said, yeah, you can come, but contingent on your coming, you actually have to build your own home. Yeah. Which actually had to show that you had some, some grit, you know? So how are you guys from a design perspective? Is it kind of anything goes? Well, no, no, not. no. So, so, so very. This is very interesting. Again, yeah. I feel like a lot of it is pick your battles because you can't do everything. So, one of my big inspirations is a is a community that's outside of Ojai called Quail, Quail Springs Permaculture. Right. It's all cob, earthen buildings. It's unreal, incredible what they've done there. And I've done some earthen building. And I'm passionate about it. And we made the art barn yes, at Commune Topanga. You enlisted our, my yeah. children very yes, briefly. Very briefly. Yeah. Very briefly. Um, ironically, the what I my earthen building has become an outhouse <laughs> recently, yeah. which is interesting. It's the the I saw the most, compostable toilet there yes, in the earthen building. Yes, the most amount of labor hours into an outhouse of all time, um, but <laughs> I got a little distracted there. No, we if. One of the things we talk a lot about design patterns at Rooted mm-hmm. and one of the things that we've has been recommended to us is you kind of want everyone to move in at the same time because mm-hmm. then you develop your patterns through the common house at the same time right. as well as from a cost perspective, there's a time money <laughs> kind of thing going sure. on. And so we're building ours as a traditional development where all the houses are getting built at once. There's, different designs a through basic uniformity basic uniformity because if we were all going to build our own homes it would all it would take it's also for repairs and and fixture like you want some efficiency basically again it's about you stick to talk about commune you stick to mission like what is our core value what is our core mission farmland preservation helping small and medium-sized farmers living in community if the project doesn't get done none of those things happen right Right, so let's not worry over concern ourselves with geodesic. Uh, there will be plenty. We have 240 acres. I guarantee I can build myself a Cobb outhouse someday, somewhere. You, you will be in the Cobb outhouse circle. <laughs> yeah. We'll have a membership of one. <laughs> I hope it doesn't. It's a lot of work to build a Cobb outhouse. <laughs> Do you consent? No. Um, yeah, okay. By the way, Cobb is when people just sort of have a visual. It's like Adobe. It's a mix of uh, sand, clay, and straw that you you, you mush together. Mush down and yeah. it dries, and yes. it's great. Um, okay, where are we going now? Regenerative. So I think the regenerative agriculture is one direction we could go, and, and how to get like what it looks like oh, yeah. as a small and medium-sized farmer these days is yeah, one direction. I, I want to do that, but la- last question more on the governance side, and then let's go into regen. Um, can anyone join and can someone get the boot? Yeah, so it's a lot like a marriage <laughs> in a lot of ways. So we're not, not not polyamorous, but it is like a collective marriage in some ways. I like we have what we call an explorership period. Mm-hmm. So you go do an info session. Um, go to Rooted Northwest, rootednw.org, and sign up for an info session. Uh, you go to an info session. You take a tour of the land, etc. And then, if you're interested, from that point, you can become an explorer. Where it's like a ten week to four month. We actually cut it off at the end process, where you get to you. 
full kimono opening, see all, everything. You're part of the community. You're encouraged to join a circle um, and even vote in circles, but not on certain issues anyways. But you're, there's a process where you're really involved. And then if you decide at that point to apply for membership, that is one of the few things that requires full consent from, from mm. all members. Uh, so, right. um, But this is but very much like a co-op board. This is what I had to very, do. Very, yeah. very similar to a co-op board. Yeah. yeah, I had to do it. You have to. I was nervous as hell. I was very young. <laughs> this is our first apartment. I had to go and like, you know, work and so nervous into this board meeting. And anyways, I passed. But um, yeah. and then to get it also requires. Oh, I don't have don't have the bylaws right on my mind, or it's not even the bylaws. It's part of the actual operating agreement of the LLC. You can, but it's difficult. It's certainly much more difficult to be removed. Mm-hmm. And it has it has happened, right? Um, well, it hasn't happened yet, or maybe it has. Well, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So it, it can see. it can happen, but it's very very difficult, and there has to be a really serious reason for it to happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not just two in the morning coke parties, <laughs> although that's probably. There's some bylaw depends, against depends that. Depends who you invite. Yeah. You invite the whole community. <laughs> if you invite enough of the no community, problem. then you're good to go. Um, okay. So regenerative farming, obviously a probably the North Star on some level of, of the community. And we talked about kind of the intersectionality of the issues and all of the solutions that regenerative farming offers. Um, so how are you going... What is the approach here in terms of, you know, getting the farm in the ground and, you know, what do you plant and like Well, so I will say that our, as a community, we are not, we are not farming. Like we are not, there's no risk on either side. We're here to facilitate what we like to call it as a farming accelerator is Mm -hmm. is the way that the language that I use. let me just take a step back and say, like, let's say that you want to get involved in regenerative agriculture. You're a 20-something or 30-something or a 50-something or 60-something. It's, you know, going to be your next career. I've right. seen, honestly, all sides of that. All right, great. You decide you're going to find purpose in your life and go do this. Or maybe you even have been a farmer or grew up on a farm. Buying land, really expensive, really yeah. difficult. Um, then you're on the land by yourself with your yeah. nuclear family if you have a family it's very isolating it's a lot a lot just, of money a lot of cap, lot of, capital well and then yeah all the infrastructure of yeah. like if you're a vegetable farmer your wash pack situation you know all the your irrigation all that right. sort of stuff so our goal is to provide like we by developing this village we are saying this land is now available if you're a member free you know you just need to work with the ag circle Right. To you, determine, so there's a master permaculture plan mm-hmm. that kind of one of our founders is a permaculture designer, um, fairly well known, has written a permaculture book, and he's done for us uh, a permaculture plan that is like these, you know, here's the soil compositions, these areas are going to be better for these things, etc. And the agriculture circle, like if you come to them and you're like, I want to do a three acre you pick blueberry farm, actually something that's happening. Mava doesn't realize how good she's going to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. This is going to be the best place for you kind of in the map. And then, right. you know, building out from there. 
Um, so, and then, but then, but you, if you want to have an agriculture business, great. That is separate from the community, the function in the community itself. You're not paying a tax, you know, you're not paying the community to work the land and the community is not, certainly not like, we will have our own community garden, which honestly is going to look a lot given the people involved will probably look like a small farm. Right. Um, but it's all individual micro enterprises that are working synergistically together, facilitated by some level of infrastructure that we've already invested in. So we have a wash pack shed. We've built a base irrigation phase one in the plans, in the actual build out, like ultimately what we've submitted to the county includes like a proper wash pack facility, cold storage, uh, commercial kitchen farm stand cafe hmm. with parking you know the whole because you got to do all the traffic studies and the right. blah 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 blah, blah. Yeah. so all that is in the more future. of like an apricot lane kind of sure style. i've certainly been inspired yeah. by what they are what they do but differently that is one enterprise well, that's true yeah, yeah you yeah. know right. that is but i just mean in terms of some of the facility around uh, like you know, lectures and cafe and, and yeah, but what you end up having is you have and, one woman yeah. on, in the community, for example, who's super into composting. She wants right. to have kind of a mini composting business. Another woman has duck eggs, and you know that's going to create a certain amount of fertilizer. And another person actually is already there with a CSA vegetable farm. Another mm -hmm. couple runs already on the land a medicinal herb farm. There's all these synergies that then happen between all those individual enterprises. Yeah. And that is that that's when you get part. to regenerate, but that yeah, is also that's connecting all the different parts with yeah. the mother parts. Yes. That's, <laughs> that is what makes regenerative agriculture work or perm yeah. that is also a definition of permaculture is these these loops, you know, nature works in circles and how can you cycle nutrients mm -hmm. through all of these different enterprises? Personally, I hope to have a small fermentation business that takes farm seconds like mm. things that are leftovers from the farm sure. and turns them into value-added fermentation projects. That's not going to be my full-time business, but it's something... So there's all these Make levels. Make me some good whey powder. I'm, there's got to be probably a cheese maker on <laughs> just That's some leftover whey and just <laughs> make me some whey powder so I can grow some muscle. Um, and, but what about... So because there's a, you know, a couple hundred acres, so is, is some of the land going to be farmed by quote unquote like farmers well it... well yeah yeah yeah. i yeah. mean so there are as i said there's going to be there's a whole gradient already yeah. you can see it developing in the community from on one end people whose full-time job is farming mm -hmm. there's a few families few households that that is there's the csa vegetable farmer there's these the couple that runs the medicinal herb farm um another woman the you pick blueberry operation the flower farm so that's at one right. end all the way down to me making kraut, you know, two, two weekends. Got it. But so are there certain sort of enforced precepts or, or, or kind of regenerative concepts of like, yeah, sure, but you're, you're obviously not using herbicides and pesticides, you're no-till, you're cover cropping, you're, you know, et cetera, you're composting, or is it a little bit of Organic a, certification is the bait. We yeah. were in the process of doing the organic conversion, which mm -hmm. is a whole process. Yes. So yes, organic. The only rule, the only hard rules that we have though are can't mess up the organic certification and no commercial marijuana. 
Um, other stuff is, you know, again, it's that shared responsibility and autonomy. We're not here to say you have to do it that way, but, you know, you can't, well, you can't spray, 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 yeah, spray right. glyphosate anyway because it wouldn't yeah. be organic. But, you know, what you do affects the other farmers. Sure. And so, you know, certainly in terms of water use, this is all things yeah. that are worked out. Nothing, the, the thing about working in community is hard and fast rules, too many hard and fast rules often show are, are a sign of a brittle community or a brittle structure. I won't just say mm-hmm. community. When you have to re- rely on a lot of laws, that is actually a sign of brittleness versus structures that allow for listening and communication and understand mutual understanding. Yeah. So again, so, so yeah, the only thing yeah. is no commercial marijuana because that is, we just don't want to get, that's a whole can of worms and we're organic. Yeah. It's like, um, I know we've listened to many of the same Alan Watts lectures, but he talks about the best magistrates having this sense of Lee, uh-huh. uh, not Lee as organic pattern, but Lee kind of as a sense of fairness it can never actually be written down as laws because you're always going to find some loophole around the laws or whatever. Congress passes more laws, lawyers find more loopholes, et cetera. But you know, the, the best judges and in this case communities just operate out of Lee. It's not anything on a piece of paper. It's just a greater sense of fairness and, and justice. I want to talk a little bit about the risk because you haven't been uh, averse to risk in the past. And of course, I'm not sure we ever actually put an uh, exclamation point on the end of the year story. Um, But unfortunately, uh, after a five-year beautiful run in the yurt, there was potentially a neighbor who was looking down on the structure and took offense to it and called in the county, and the county came, and it was an unpermitted structure, and unfortunately had to tear it down. But oh, you sort of knew tear, sad tear yeah. emoji. I mean, a month ago we wouldn't have been able to describe it that way. That was a very sort of officious, bullet-pointed. Yes, way of no, t- but I'm glad you described it that way, and I'm glad you bring up the concept of risk because you and I, totally unrelated to this podcast, were having a a really important conversation about risk and how when you take risk. You can't just assume that, yeah, there's risk, but I only get the benefits of it. It's like my parents often gave very good advice that I failed to heed in many respects, but don't gamble with money you're not willing to lose. Mm -hmm. That means you might lose the money and you need to be okay with it. And again, it's that the risk reward. I, we lived this incredibly beautiful, challenging at times in an off grid yurt, um, life as a result of this risk. And I actually was very proud of how I accepted the downside of the risk. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly Rooted has helped. I mean, the project, I'll just give a little more of a quick update of, so the law passed with the county. We've submitted hundreds of pages of paperwork to the county. It's kind of in the permitting process. And now like construction is actually on the horizon as opposed to like before the law was passed, it was like, well, we hope we have Maybe. a project, yeah. you know, it's not legal yet, but um, yeah, we have floor plans and, you know, it's really, there is, I can actually look out on the horizon and see like move in out there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in a couple of years. So the, the bitterness was sort of rounded. Yeah, so the bitterness of losing the year, uh, there was a lot of inconvenience, but certainly the, the bitterness of losing such an idyllic living situation, which to be honest was probably not going to serve a multi-child household, which is yeah. our Where hope. Going. Yeah. yeah, forever and ever and ever. But risk of this project. Um, yeah, like everything, there is risk. The biggest risk, to be honest, is we at this point we own the land, albeit we have a mortgage on the land. Um, you know, there could be some issues with the county. For sure, we're not fully through the permitting process, but we have been working with them pretty closely. This this development is not a surprise. Um, it's really time. And that's honestly why I wanted to get on the podcast with you because we need to fill up membership, you know, in the coming months. Depends. There's a few factors. But we kind of need to get everyone on board yeah. so that we can actually all finish. Essentially, it's a little complicated, but to go get the construction loan and get the construction developer on board, you need to show a certain number of people involved. And we're close to that number, but need a few more households. So that's... Yeah. Well, like what you were saying before, you know, if you're interested in a life you know, whether it's regenerative agriculture or a community or shared facilities, et cetera. And there is obviously a rising tide of people that are interested in that. But to be able to finance that and execute that yourself on your own is beyond ridiculously difficult. So this is a way for essentially, if you want to be a regenerative farmer, but you, there's no chance you're going to go buy the land and start your own regenerative farm, this is your foot in the door without having to do all that work on your own. With and, a home yeah, and with, with community a, yeah. support. Because, I mean, we haven't even yeah. talked about, I just talked about land cost and infrastructure. It's also the, emo and we talked a little bit, but like farmer suicide being such an issue, yeah. there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But the ice, like you have community, you have a support of a community that understands agriculture, that you can come home weeknights and hopefully there's a hot meal that you, you can sit around with your friends and your family and haven't had to prepare that. I talk, I'm good friends with the, um, the vegetable CSA farmer and yeah, he dreams, he dreams of those days coming up. He has two daughters who are obsessed with Mava. It's so cute. They, they pulled a, they were harvesting garlic and the little girls pulled a little tiny clove out that hadn't really grown. <laughs> the they clove. called it the Mava clove. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. Great. Um, I want to just hover over risk just for a second. But then there's the yeah. risk of the community falling apart later, which is well, where I think totally. you, were, you were going I with mean, it. it's fraud. I mean, every there have been more failures in this kind of enterprise than there have been successes. Granted that this is a completely updated model, but I'm talking about like communes of old. There were 3,000 communes, I think, in the United States kind of since inception. And there's like a handful that have somehow made it. So, and I know this isn't a commune. No, 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 up, I understand. It's, it's, it's very yeah, interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting for even right now, me thinking this, this conversation has put a slightly different context on it. We are most fragile now before we've built the thing and moved in. Mm -hmm. Once we've moved in, you know, unlike some of those other communes, I'll own my home. It's a lot more like, you don't think of a of a co-op in New York City being that brittle because if you really dislike it, 
you can leave and and you can exit and sell yeah. your home. And my understanding, at least from our from other co housing projects, is that you typically have a wait list. Like this is not it's not difficult to sell mm-hmm. your home. And yes, just like a co op, the community needs to approve who's coming in. But it's on in everyone's interest to get you know if you're not happy to get the home sold and there's less I think a lot of those communes and it certainly could ultimately fizzle out with people that are not on board with the vision I think that is certainly something that happens is the initial group really is really like tied into the vision because if you're going to stick around and work through it and whatever and then over time it cycles out we don't know we're going to have to see but no matter what the the combination like we will have succeeded at least in our mission of preserving that farmland Mm -hmm. um and having a small walkable village development and the infrastructure being there so there's a lot of our mission i think that will be succeeding no matter what and i would hope that that community would continue to attract in fact our real hope is that it will become more and more affordable for farmers over time because although there are a fair amount of farmers it is you know we have to split the cost yeah Yeah, i mean the the way it works is the total project cost including land cost construction consultants you know fees to the county that whole pie has to get sliced up and into all 35 to 40 mortgages Mm -hmm. and there's no way around that and so it's you know there is a certain amount of cost involved that ideally will as people maybe can grant, you know, their homes to community land trusts or things that we're looking into other affordability strategies that would hopefully both that would preserve the mission by actually reserving more household space in the future for people that are making their livelihood from farmers. Cause I'll add one quick thing. Cause just cause it was a stat that we looked up beforehand, 1.3% of the current working population is involved directly in on-farm jobs. Mm-hmm. And one of the big arguments about regenerative agriculture is like, oh, that can't feed the world. Right. But it's proven that on a per acre basis, it can be much more productive than vast monocropping, like vastly more productive. But what it requires is the human touch. It requires more people because you can't just run your combine over, you know, 800 acres of corn. So how do you go from a population that 1.3% on farm workers to more to make a regeneratively fed society work you need That's, more hand-sewn dresses. I mean, well, you also like, need more. But I mean, in a analogy kind of yeah. way, you need people basically willing to to do it and, and attractive. I mean, it yeah, needs to look like right. like I'm part of this community. It's attached to this farm. There's all this community support. Anyways, that's the yeah. that's the vision. That's the vision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we we flirt with you know stoicism. A lot, and you know, I, I agree. Kind of in the more classic, uh, widely used um, definition of stoicism, you were very stoic about what happened with the yurt. But there was, you know, there's a lot of there's, you know, four primary virtues in stoicism. One of which is courage. So, I mean, anything that requires risk, 
is going to require courage or anything that has risk is going to require talk about courage. Courage is vulnerability as well. But, well, that's where I'm going with it is obviously we associate courage generally with like, you know, the chest beating gladiator, you know, running into battle. But, and obviously on that level, someone is very, their, their very life there is, is vulnerable. But then, you know, there's financial vulnerability, there's emotional vulnerability, there's all of these forms of vulnerability, you almost can never have courage and take risk without some degree of some vulnerability somewhere. And this is kind of where I think stoicism is so brilliant, is that these virtues don't exist unto themselves alone. So it's like, along with courage, you also have moderation, justice and wisdom. That's the, you know, the four primary virtues of stoicism. So as part of that courage and risk-taking, you're also leveraging moderation and you're actually mitigating the risks and finding the ways around it. Yeah, I'm going to take like a step out onto the plank here, but I know that I'm moderation. I'm moderating and mitigating my risk here. I'm doing this also in a way that is fair and, and equitable. So there's your justice component, and the sum of those things generally yields some form of wisdom, and I'm you know th that's the kind of you know those are those are my filters often you know when I'm walking into any kind of situation and trying to assess all <laughs> the bits like I need to be brave, I need to be just, I need to be moderate, and I need to be wise. Well, to circle all the way back to our big list of aspects, I think you could sum them up in a middle path approach, which is pulling in a different <laughs> lineage, <laughs> a different lineage, but, but they all rhyme in some respects. And that is good. Like we get people who come to us and want to do, are super passionate about like the ecological aspects of the project. And are like, well, have you looked at this really incredible new technology that's coming for building homes with like aircrete or hempcrete or right. sips, you know, all these different things. And we're like, cool, awesome, maybe, but you know, we have to make sure this gets done. And that often means the middle, the <laughs> middle path approach. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, the last plank here, um, before we wear each other out is, you know, over the last few months, particularly, we've talked a lot about social isolation and loneliness and how much loneliness is connected to both physiological and psychological pathology, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, there's all these studies out, you know, loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes per day or whatever for all cause mortality. Um, and uh, and obviously, when you're lonely or feel socially isolated, essentially that your social connections don't meet your social needs, you know, you begin to sort of perceive threat. You distrust the world around you. There's obviously a whole kind of cascade of endocrine <laughs> components to that um, that can keep you in a sort of constant state of fight or flight. All these things, and this is an epidemic. I mean, our Surgeon General wrote a book about it, and he's out there talking about it all the time now. Um, but it's often overlooked because it's it's so much easier to put your thumb on diabetes or cancer or heart disease, et cetera. But loneliness impacts so many different people. And I think, you know, 
there's obviously a lot of ways to foster and cultivate community. You don't necessarily have to go join Root no, in Northwest. I'm, I'm, I'm always on the extreme end yeah. of everything. It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. start a company, live in a yurt, <laughs> build an intentional community from scratch with a bunch of people 800 miles away. You know, that, that's me all, all the time. For sure. <laughs> and I think this represents, like you said, you know, you did all this work around, um, you know, getting the codes changed. You know, this represents a model for other communities to use and leverage and mimic and i think the hope is is that these could spring up all over the place and and you know create a whole new paradigm for what it you know means to live together but at the very least what we can probably do is just try to know our neighbors and you know really actively engage in you know some of these social fitness protocols you know such that you know we can live in in better community yeah I, I would say all of those things and because it's funny, people don't quite realize, I think, how close the relationship I have between you, you, me, and Skylar create this like weird non-polyamorous triangle <laughs> yeah. um, in which I, I bring, uh, I just love you both so much and I bring aspects, I feel like I represent really just like a third point to the triangle that that is both of you. And I'm going to pull in a little bit of Skylar right now and hold some ground on like the, oh gosh, extremism is not the right, not the word that I wanted to say, but, but, uh, pure, purist. Yeah. Skylar's a little bit purist. And honestly, that's totally. why I would say, I would say one of the things that I have learned is that if you really want to change your life, you have to change your surroundings, like actually make a real difference in what is around you and what you are embedded in on a day to day. Because going back to the, the Alan Watts ecosystem stuff, you are your surroundings. And yes, you can certainly make an effort to go and meet your neighbor. And that is all things that you absolutely should do. But living like living in community in a way where you depend on other people in some way. And that dependence could just be that you share some space, mm -hmm. I think is a situation worthy of putting yourself in. And it certainly does not have to look nearly as ambitious as rooted Northwest, but there is, there, there are urban co-housing communities. Mm -hmm. There is lots of, I mean, it could also just look like co-renting, co-buying, um, you know, I was just in this in-between period was just looking at a rental where the back unit would be with a friend, even that, even just putting yourself in relate in some form of true relationship with someone. Um, I come here and co-work with you and I'm gracious for that. And that actually like changes my environment. So that's what I would say is that it's just a little, it's a little bit more, uh, the, the challenge. Right. Well, you have to inconvenience yourself uh, yes. yeah, in life um, to reap reward. And, you know, you see that if you're trying to build your bicep, you have to inconvenience <laughs> it. You have to rip some filament in it such that, you know, the fiber grows back a little bit bigger. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we become so 
accustomed to ease and convenience and you know ordering up any form of food in and out of season on a 24 7 basis from the palm of your hand or whatever that you know that 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 convenience is leading to a very inconvenient truth which we're very lonely Ironically, though, what I think I'm also what I'm, it's funny. I'm suggesting both things. I'm saying inconvenience yourself by making your you know diving into a little bit of a situation, but also so that social interaction becomes truly convenient. Because I would say, as something in LA yeah. or in the digital age, it, it seems in-person interaction seems very inconvenient, yeah. especially for busy. I don't like the word busy. I like to say my life is very full. Yeah. Uh, but for, for people whose lives are very full, well, like you and me, I actually need to come here. Um, and there's another one of our employees who does as well for that reason. So there is a little bit of both inconvenience so that the socializing or the community aspect can be very convenient. Right. That's a good point. Well, I count myself very lucky to be in constant community with you. It's been a, it's been a haul, and um, even when you move, I hope we find a, a way. Oh, you will. Maybe you can come and be in a, a tag-along roommate. I'll be some sort of emeritus, <laughs> something. I'll have to grow a long beard. Roommate emeritus. Yeah. Um, Jeff, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jake Laub. If you enjoy the show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, well, write us a review, preferably a good one. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review and then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. It makes a huge difference. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.